Hey friends, Jay Steven here. As I record this today in Charleston, South Carolina, I'm always surprised when I have to add the South Carolina part to people when uh, they ask me where I'm from, because the only two Charlestons I know are South Carolina and West Virginia. And no disrespect to West Virginia, but I mean, Charleston is like, you know, in the Condé Nast travel magazines and all that stuff. So I'm always like, no, South Carolina. Anyway. Today, it is torrentially raining. I mean, it is coming down hard and sideways, which has just become the normal here in Charleston during the summer. I think we probably get more rain here than uh, Seattle does. And it's concerning because we also are getting more flooding and it's getting hotter. But people that don't believe that climate change is a thing, it, it just astounds me. Which I don't know why, because over the last five years, the things that people believe and the things that people say have just been batshit crazy. So I don't know why, when they don't believe it, that it surprises me. But anyway, the episode today I'm very excited about because it's my friend Chris Tompkins, who in the intro, as you'll hear, uh, is one of my favorite people. Um, there's also a weird little, uh, editing thing, uh, in this week's episode. It was in full transparency. Uh, it was the second episode I recorded and it was the first one I did remotely, meaning that he was in Los Angeles and I was in the aforementioned Charleston, South Carolina. So there's a weird little <laughs> intro at the beginning where we're, we're small talking and I allude to the fact that I'm going to edit it out, but then the editing just wasn't working. So raw and unfiltered is how I like it, as you know. Uh, also, what did I want to tell you? Oh, if you want to practice with me, if you want to do some yoga or maybe need a little meditation coaching, you can look at my YouTube channel, also called There Once Was a Yogi. There are several guided meditations there. There's some yin yoga. There's some vinyasa yoga. Uh, there's some practices that are 20 minutes, some that are an hour. Uh, it's a good way to fit some yoga into your, into your life if you want to. And if you want to take a live class with me, if you're not here in town, you can take a live class via Zoom if you go to holycowyogacenter.com. That is the studio I teach out of uh, the most, and my schedule is there. If you ever want to take a live class, you can just register and pay all through that website. And I think that was all I really had to, to say to you this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you'll read Chris's book that we talk about as well. So until next time, friends, farewell. Oh my gosh, any reason to... <laughs> talk to you is put me <laughs> well, on an official quote podcast i say how about how i'll propose this we'll start recording in a bit and then when we end the recording i'll call you and then okay. we can actually catch up okay. <laughs> does that sound good Perfect. all right so we're gonna pause we're just gonna pause and then when i start talking we'll be recording okay All right, dear ones, I am so happy to be talking to one of my favorite humans, Chris Tompkins, who has a uh, beautiful and uh, necessary book that just came out a couple of months ago called Raising LGBTQ Allies, A Parent's Guide to Changing the Messages from the Playground. Hi, Chris. Hi, Stephen. <laughs> I, uh, I'm so, thank you, and I'm so happy to be talking to you, but especially in a weird, uh, almost professional setting. I know. <laughs> no, I mean, you're, I love that we are even talking and any excuse to spend time with you. Um, it's a joy to be with you. Well, thank you. I, I'll give a, a little bit of background real quick. So Chris and I, how long have we known each other? Six years? Probably at least. Maybe. We were in a uh, spiritual practitioner program together uh, about six years ago. And <laughs> this, is, this also shows you how uh, fast technology changes. Because when Chris and I did the program, I live in Charleston, South Carolina, and Chris lives in Los Angeles. And we had maybe a couple other people from different places. But we were doing that class on the telephone. 
Yeah. <laughs> that was like, <clears throat> excuse me, like even pre-Zoom. Zoom, yeah, totally. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I know, isn't that wild? Like that yeah. was only six years ago. And um, I remember, and I think, you know, we maybe had all become Facebook friends. Yes. So I only saw like flat pictures of you and knew your voice. So um, I, I <laughs> for like, I don't know, eight or nine months. And then we did the first retreat. And so I, yeah. And uh, I remember when, uh, when you walked into the room, I was like, of course he looks like that. Oh, God. Because <laughs> you look like this, like, you know, all-American male model. Oh, but my God. And you turned out to be the sweetest. Like, I always say this about you, that you are, like, the most genuinely kind person that I think I know. Uh, thank you, Stephen. Yeah, I love... I love you. And I think that, I mean, that was such an amazing experience. Um, we were roommates. We were, well, we were. Kappa, yeah. Kappa, hey, girl, hey. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh, that was so fun. That was. It was like one of the most uh, fun weekends. Just, oh, my uh, God. Yeah, I, I had a blast. Uh, but, yes, yeah, so that's how uh, Chris and I know each other. All right, so I do, I want to uh, jump on in. Okay. Uh can you talk a little bit about what messages from the playground, what your, what that philosophy is? Yeah. I, I love that you are asking that because that really kind of segues nicely into, I think the, the conversation that we're going to have today is that so, so messages from the playground. So my, my book, um, the title of my book is called Raising LGBTQ Allies, and the subtitle is called A Parent's Guide to Changing the Messages from the Playground. And the messages from the playground, that's kind of like something that I've been using, that I've used pretty uh -huh. much since I came out of the closet, which is like 15 years, you know, more than 15, oh. yeah, more than 15 years ago, because when I started doing, so when I came out of the closet, um, I immersed myself into LGBTQ advocacy work. I was living in, I came out of the closet in Mexico, but I moved back to the United States and was- That's a great place to come out of the closet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that, that could be a whole separate, you know, I write about it in my book, but um, when I, when I, after I came out, I moved back to where I'm from, which is Tucson, Arizona. And I remember I would drive up to Phoenix because Phoenix, Arizona had a large HRC community. And so mm -hmm. I drive up and I would do a lot of HRC related volunteer work. And, and so how I, how I used to talk to people is that I would say, you know, we all played on the same playground. Like I used to use this kind of analogy in order to help people understand that, you know, cause they would ask me questions about coming out of the closet or mm -hmm. you know, a relative of theirs. And I would, I would talk to them about, you know, messages from the playground just because I'm gay doesn't mean that I didn't pick up the same messages that you picked up about what it means uh, right and so it was kind of a way for me to help other people non-lgbtq people understand maybe some of the work that we were doing um and and if they had a loved one or if they had questions about the closet and um that kind of thing and so when I moved out to Los Angeles to work for GLAAD, which is a large media advocacy, LGBTQ media advocacy organization, I used the same kind of analogy. Um, and it wasn't until I started doing the deeper inner work in my own life that I was uncovering what I refer to as the messages from the playground, which no matter who we are or where we come from, we all play on the same playground. And it's an analogy that I use to describe societal beliefs and their impact on the collective conscious. Yeah. You know, I, uh, because I've, I've been having this conversation with a lot of uh, friends lately and uh, someone said the other day, uh, it's like, you never get out of the, the high school lunchroom. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, um, and I think that, well, there are two things that I want to uh, touch on from that is one, how, how do those messages because you were the first person I ever heard this term from. How do those messages turn into internalized homophobia? So for just the sake of clarification, I think that for your listeners, internalized homophobia is a term that not a lot of people are super familiar with. 
I mean, it kind of sounds, I mean, if you say internalized homophobia, it evokes a certain kind of like, oh, okay, I think I understand what you're saying. <laughs> uh, I think it's in really, I, th I think for those who maybe don't really understand it, is that internalized homophobia is basically the messages that we take on from the outside and we internalize those messages. And so for any parent or caregiver and children, a normal natural part of any child development is what's called introjection. And so as children, we introject the messages that we, that we learn growing up in our household, in our communities, in society. And most of those messages are unconscious. Mm. And so just by virtue of being socialized in a culture that is heteronormative, most young people internalize messages about what it means to be LGBTQ. Right. Um, and, and so it's pretty much, it's safe to say that we all have some form of internalized homophobia. In my book, I, I refer to it as internalized queer phobia. Mm. I think it's important to also include, include gender. And so, um, because there's such thing as internalized transphobia. Right. Oh, that's a great point. Um, uh, I think it's one of those things uh, because I wanted to, when Chris and I talked about this, I, a loose topic was how can gay men be better to each other? Mm -hmm. And so the internalized homophobia aspect is interesting to me because you know, that saying um, hurt people hurt people. Mm -hmm. And so on this topic of internalized homophobia, at some point that's going to become externalized homophobia, right? Right. Yes. Even within our community. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that I, I, I'm so grateful to you that you're having and wanting to have this conversation because I think that in my own journey, in my own life, I used to be very fearful of talking to people about internalized homophobia. Mm -hmm. I mean, even in spiritual spaces where I would bring up the subject, I, mm. I found that I get a lot of pushback from, from LGBTQ people because, you know, there, there's almost this, this feeling of they're being attacked. They're being, they're being attacked, but also because we are the queer community group, if mm -hmm. we're talking about something that is basically saying that I have some, internal resistance to my identity, then there's almost a feeling of you're abandoning our community or you're airing, mm. or you're airing our dirty laundry. And, and what I've since found and where I stand today, and this is what I talk about in my book, and this is what I really think is important for us to emphasize as a community, is that when I hear someone who openly names internalized homophobia or internalized transphobia, I actually applaud them because I think that that means to me that they've done their work. They've, they're, mm. do, they're, they're doing their inner work. Whereas before I used to kind of be a little fearful of bringing it up because I didn't want to look like I was calling anyone out or I didn't want to look like I was denying myself um, I've kind of heard in the past, like gay men refer to it as like self-loathing. Um, yeah. and, and, and what I actually think now is like, oh my gosh, if I hear a gay man refer to internalized homophobia, like I did a podcast interview with someone from India a few weeks ago, a mm -hmm. young gay man. And he actually started talking about internalized homophobia and he's probably 20 years younger than me and from a completely different generation. And when he started talking about internalized homophobia, I was like, oh my gosh, that means that you're, you have a certain level of awareness that you've been doing inner work. Yeah, I was just going to say, you're doing some work. So I think it might be important here, Chris, to give some examples. And I'm going to work on the, the, the read languaging because I do like how you've reframed that. Uh, what are some ways that internalized queerphobia 
shows up in in the community in the world? Yes. Okay. That's a really great question. So I want to share with you something that I think is to me stunning, astounding. Um, so I mentioned to you before we started that I'm in graduate school and I'm getting a master's in clinical psychology. And for my this past quarter, for spring quarter, I took a class called community psychology. And so in that class, I had to partner with someone, at least one person. Um, it wound up being a small group. Well, we had, we had to break up into groups. And so my group ended up being just two people, myself and one other person. And we picked a topic and our topic was domestic violence in the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. And so we spent 10 weeks, my partner and I, that's the duration of the class. And we had to spend the entirety of the class on our particular topic. And then at the very end, we had to present our findings to the class. And so we had to do a deep dive into research and to, um, it's a community psychology class. So we had to come up with community interventions. Um, and so we really took a deep dive into the subject matter and one of the things that I shared in my presentation that I, I told this to the class, the most astounding thing that I learned doing this, studying this topic is that, and I'll share it with you, is that LGBTQ intimate partner violence is just as common as heterosexual intimate partner violence. Whoa. And the second is, so that's the first fact. The second- Like statistically, like the numbers are just as high. The numbers are just as high. It's the same. That is wild. And the second is, the second thing that's important is that depending on the studies that we read, intimate partner violence occurs, the rates are within one in three couples or one in five couples. So it varies between- Wow. Three couples and one in five couples. So both of those things right there tell you that it's very common. And when I say intimate partner violence, I'm referring to not just physical. Right. I'm referring to emotional, financial, anything mm. where there is a power differential. And the third, and this is what kind of ties the bow on the topic of our conversation today, is that the difference, the main difference between intimate partner violence in LGBTQ relationships and heterosexual relationships is that intimate partner violence in the LGBTQ community always occurs in the context of anti-LGBTQ bias. What does that that. So what does that mean? That's internalized homophobia. Huh. Anti-LGBTQ bias is homophobia. So when intimate partner violence always occurs within the context of anti-LGBTQ bias, what that basically says is couples, lesbian, gay, transgender, anyone who's in a relationship that's LGBTQ and there's intimate partner violence, it's basically the internalized queer phobia. To answer your question, how does that show up in the world is where it, it shows up as I'm attacking the other person. I'm disconnected mm, right. from myself. So I'm projecting onto my partner the shame that I'm feeling about myself and my identity. So I'm taking that out on the person I love the most. Wow. That is, I, you know, I mean, that astounds me that, that it's, I, for lack of a better word, that it's that common. Yeah. And and what, what what's more is that... W- I'm going to be starting my my clinical training in the fall at the LGBT center. And mm-hmm. when I did my when I did my interview for so just for the sake of explanation is that whenever you are in school to get a master's in clinical psychology, part of your program requires that you get what's called a clinical training uh, practicum at a facility where you basically earn X number of hours in order to graduate with with the degree. Mm-hmm. So the place that I'll be getting my training at is the LGBT center. And one of the foremost leading experts of intimate partner violence with an LGBTQ community is a woman who works at the LG, the Los Angeles LGBT center. And she's also a professor at Antioch University, which is the school that I'm going to. 
And she writes a lot about this subject. I mean, she teaches the subject. Um, it's a required course. Anyone, mm -hmm. any clinician in the United States, she helped pass a law that requires any clinician or any, any person who's going to a graduate program for uh, licensure to become a therapist, you have to take a relate, you have to take a class on intimate partner violence and the LGBTQ community. And, and so what she says is that intimate partner violence, IPV in the LGBTQ community is the most, it, it's, it's the biggest health crisis. She refers to it as the biggest health crisis affecting our community. Oh, wow. Huh. Yeah. So that's, well, that's, that's more than drinking and, you know, right, right. abuse, um, suicide. And I, I share this, and this is a really, I mean, it's a deep conversation and we jumped right in. <laughs> um, I think though, to me, it really points to why talking about internalized homophobia is so important. Well, Chris, you know, I, I, I agree. And I think, I think that there are going to be people that hear that and think, well, oh, well, I'm not in that. What do you, what do you think are the more though, like, like person to person, like not in a real, outside of a relationship, like what are the ways where it shows up internalized uh, uh, homophobia shows up like within just interactions or friendships or, you know what I mean? Like that's a very big way that you just described. <clears throat> yeah. Excuse me. But what are the like, even maybe the more subtle. Yeah, subtle. Yeah. That's why I love that you say subtle because that's, it requires a certain level of awareness. And mm -hmm. so I, I write about this in my book a lot and I, Brilliantly. I really point to specific little examples and I could share with you, you know, just little examples is, you know, I mentioned to you before we started this call, I was in Mexico for a month and I was at a restaurant and I, w I was, I had a really lovely waitress and, and she, we, I, uh, I was speaking in Spanish. We were speaking in Spanish and she's from Cuba. She was telling me that she's from Cuba and she moved to Mexico city. And that's where I was, I was staying. And she asked me if, if I was in Mexico, if I, if I had a girlfriend or if I was um, there, you know, to meet the, if I wanted to have a Mexican girlfriend or get married. <laughs> and, you know, Steven, I, I've had this, I've been in this situation so many times and I've, I even wrote a book called How to, you know, Raising LGBTQ Allies. And in that moment, I chose to not tell her that I was gay. Oh. And, and so that is a small, small, teeny tiny example. And I, I, I use the, I, I write about this in my book where I say, you know, it's really not necessary to come out to every single person throughout the day because it would be exhausting. Right. Uh, and so you kind of have to, as a queer person, you kind of have to navigate, yeah, was that really necessary? I think though the level of awareness is to check in with yourself and say, did I choose not to, to correct her and mm. tell her that I'm gay because I just, I didn't want to have the conversation. It was raining. I was there eating dinner. I don't really need to get into the details of my life. Or is it because there was a subtle, small part of me that didn't want to disappoint her? Uh, that's exactly right. Which is where I would have gone with it, I think. And so that is the small example of how internalized homophobia mm. can show up in our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. And so it takes a certain level of awareness, presence, Right. Be able to, you know, because it's one thing I live in West Hollywood and it's one thing to walk up and down the street and 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 to go to a coffee shop and to see gay men holding hands, lesbian women kissing, uh, uh -huh. you know, gender uh, people walking through the neighborhood. And it's another thing to be in another country and to be her assumption was heteronormative. You know, she made a heteronormative assumption about me. Right. And for me not to correct her. Oh. And, and, and so I think also when we're talking about internalized homophobia or internalized queer phobia, it's really important that we 
take the blame away from ourselves. Yeah. Because if we're only talking about one part or one aspect of how internalized queer phobia can manifest itself, then we're placing the onus on ourselves. And the only reason that internalized queer phobia exists is because we live in a heteronormative culture and because we're socialized in a heteronormative culture. Mm-hmm. And so that puts the onus on society to change and not just for LGBTQ people. Like, right. why, why do I have this disconnect with my identity? I'm a gay man. I've been out my entire life, like, or not my entire life, but I've been out for a very long time. Like, why am I still experiencing these little subtleties? And that's where, that's why really the impetus of my book is to change culture from a parenting perspective, from a caregiver perspective, from an educator's perspective, is that if we can start to lessen the heteronormative culture and and messages from the playground, then queer people don't internalize a message about their identity that's negative. Well, you know, yeah. And I think uh, one of the things that your book does uh, so brilliantly is that it's, it is an excellent study that words matter. Yes. You know, the words that you, cause I, Oh, I wish I'd marked it, but just like the, um, you know, oh, little boys wear blue or, you know, girls don't play football. Like those words build up in a kid. Right. And then you eventually take them into your adulthood. Absolutely. I, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that I really hope that, my book helps parents, caregivers, any any person who knows or works or has young people in their lives is that children are so intuitive. And uh-huh. in my experience of working with young people, you know, I've been teaching social emotional learning for the past six years plus years in throughout Los Angeles County. And I really learned how and and, and I have five nieces and nephews. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that I'm really close with. And, you know, and I was a kid myself. And, and so, you know, I've done something we sometimes forget. No, (laughs) I actually was a young person. So I kind of have that experience, but, um, (laughs) you know, I think that what I really hope to emphasize is how intuitive and how perceptive young people are. Mm -hmm. So they pick up on subtleties and they pick up on facial expressions. They pick pick up on voice tone. And that's why it's so important for us to do the inner work Mm -hmm. so that we can create a space for a young person to be who they are. And, and then we see them and they see our facial expression when, when we see them. And that, and, and they feel that they, they grow into that. Well, I love the story that you share and I've heard the story. I've heard the story live and in person. And, uh, and it's the story you share on like your Ted talk, but it's also in the book of how you were home for the holidays and um, like a, a school friend that was a girl was there in your, um, how old was your nephew at the time? Six. Six. And that like, how do you, I think you describe it as that, whisper that only six-year-olds can do where it's like uncle chris is that your girlfriend and how everyone just found this so funny (laughs) including you i think you said you nervously laughed and yeah that sends a signal uh to your six-year-old but it also sends a signal to you because you said that that was sort of the the thing that led you into writing the book oh yeah that question changed the trajectory of my life Uh, yeah because I genuinely, when he asked me that question, I genuinely was surprised because I just really thought that I I just really thought that he knew that I was gay. Right. And and so when he asked me that question, I suddenly realized, oh, he, he doesn't know. And then I started to ask myself, well, why doesn't he know? Oh, that means that his parents haven't had a conversation. Wait. Why haven't they talked to him? Oh, they must think there's something inappropriate for him to not know about. And and that's really kind of 
what what the past seven years journey of of you know uh -huh. this book and you know it was a workshop and a presentation and became the TEDx talk but um yeah that's really you know because parents I mean even with my book I'm getting a lot of people reaching out to me and parents and, and people who work with kids and they ask me like, well, how do I start to talk to kids about, you know, how to be an LGBTQ ally? And I always say, if a good indicator is if children are asking questions, that means they're capable of understanding. Right. So I want to kind of switch lanes there because I think, yes, it's very important the, the things you say to your kids, but you just sparked something in me. How can we evolve the way we speak to each other in our community? So say more. Are you telling me to say more? Say, I'm out. <laughs> um, well, the way we speak to each other, don't you think that a lot of times um, we are just sort of um, uh, uh, continuing that uh, externalized Queer phobia. Yeah. Because you know, yeah. if you because if you look at just sort of relationships within, you know, with each letter to the other, like it's very I've always found that very bizarre that, you know, uh gay men have this feeling about, you know, lesbians or blah blah blah. And I think especially now, and I'll just speak as a gay man because that's what I am, uh, the whole mask for mask culture. Mm-hmm. Like that's how, that's queer phobia, don't you think? It is. It's very. It's 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 layered. Um, mm. I think it's it's not just internalized queer phobia. It it definitely is. It's kind of like this big ball of yarn because it also deals with and it's it's masculinity. It's, yeah, exactly. It's 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 this homophobic soup that we're all swimming in. Mm. And and it it's it's connected to the messages that young boys get about gender, and it's connected to that that's that's why language and and uncovering the ways in which parents can parents and caregivers can unknowingly contribute to gender stereotypes. Right. And it, it, it and so that's connected to all of that. You know, it's connected to this notion that you know one of the classes that I that I taught is called who am I? And one of the things that we, we invite the, the young people in that class to do is to ask them what they believe, you know, they get a journal and they write down what they believe about boys, what they believe about girls, what they believe about school, et cetera. Uh -huh. And, you know, whenever we're talking about boys and girls, it's pretty, I mean, I'm, I'm, from a completely gener different generation as the people that I'm teaching. And yet the things that I hear them say about boys and girls are the same. Are the thing. same. Yeah. That's <laughs> just from the playground is that, you know, the playground is society and the uh -huh. and the messages are these generational beliefs that get passed down. Uh -huh. And so boys are supposed to be strong and tough and, and, and masculine. That's where that mask for mask, you know, right. Because really, you know, homophobia also is connected to heterosexism. Yeah. And, and so that's connected to, I mean, this is, if you want to go really deep, that's connected to um, the fear of the hatred of women. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to get really deep, then a lot of men who like men and there's a whole class it's of like one more heteronormative trait that you bring into into queer culture right right yeah. You, yeah. you you know within our own community you know gay men who are tops are kind of viewed as more superior superior and yeah and, and and if i if someone wants to make fun of you, I mean, I worked at a gay bar for 11 years. And so I heard all of the uh -huh. jazz that, you know, if I was wanting or interested in bottoming, then I was hungry. I was a slut. I right. was weak. Yes. Submissive. Yeah. I, I have never understood the whole uh, concept of bottom shaming. Because well, like... It, it, goes back to what we were just talking about it goes back to um 
you know, the, the hatred of, 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 of female, right. Of the receptivity of, of receiving the divine feminine. Yeah. So what, what do we do? How do we, how do we change? How do we evolve? How, what do we, what do we relanguage? What do we reframe? Yeah. Okay. So I love that you, and I told you this before we went start this interview, but for your listeners who are listening, I lo- this is a perfect example of how the universe like lines things things up is because I had mentioned to you that I was just doing some reading. Mm-hmm. I actually saved two things that I wanted to read. And okay. one of which is just perfect answer to your question. <laughs> so I'm just going to read it. Um, it says, so he's writing this, this person who the, the, author of, of what I'm going to read to you. He says, while evidence of acceptance, integration, and pride in sexual and minority identity may exist, practitioners cannot assume an absence of shame or lack of client need to address shame psychotherapeutically. And then he goes on to say, even as the out proud person of color that I am, I am aware that the childhood indoctrination of shame on my same sex desire cannot be fully eradicated. A more compassionate position is in acknowledging its lingering presence through the years beyond self-acceptance, sometimes creeping up in the form of depression and self-doubt. This implies that there still is much internal work to be done. The emotional sequelae to lifelong deprivation, isolation, and humiliation do not resolve themselves through social intervention alone. And so he goes on to say that addressing toxic shame and internalized homophobia in therapy offers oh. empowering objective understanding of these feelings now viewed as psychic dynamics or persons separate from my self-worth as a gay man. Oh. So basically, to me, what I read and why I wanted to read that is what he's saying is that acknowledging internalized homophobia isn't a bad thing. Right, right. And so to answer your question, how do we change is if we can acknowledge the shadow, because if you want to bring in the spirituality part of this, this is the shadow. Yes. Disconnected part of ourselves that we don't want to accept. And, you know, from a, from an old alcoholics anonymous adage, you know, we're only as sick as our secrets. And so, you know, what we don't reveal or what we don't heal, we, or what, what is that saying? Uh, what we don't heal persist or yeah, we can't heal what we don't reveal. Mm, Yes. Yeah. So, so to answer your question is that if we can start to have these, these conversations within ourselves and also within our communities, and this isn't about finger pointing, this isn't about shame, this isn't about shame. This is actually about taking our power back and saying, Hey, look, I was raised in a dominant heteronormative culture. Like it's Mm -hmm. not possible for me to have picked up these messages. And, and that actually gives me power. Yeah. And then I have the choice and the ability to change them. But if I'm not willing to look at them, then they're just going to continue to grow and then be pervasive and then show up in my intimate partner relationships. And that's right. That's going back full circle to what we were talking about with violence. 100%, 100%. 100%, 100%. And I think too, you know, it's it's like any um, issue within a community, uh, it, it starts with the individual. Like you can't change, you can't change the world if your backyard's a mess, right? right? So we can't change this within our community until we individually, as you said, uh, look at where it comes up for us. Because I, knowing you, Chris, the way that I do, I have a very strong feeling that after at that dinner in Mexico city that you went home and did a lot of journaling around. Right. But it's that thing of like, of recognizing when it happens and then being like, Oh, why am I still carrying that belief? Like, why is that a story I'm still choosing to believe? Right. And, and this is the beauty of this work. This is the beauty of this inner work is that I was able to go home that night Mm -hmm. and and have a conversation with my inner young Chris mm-hmm. who was maybe scared to tell this woman who he didn't know that he was gay and I was able to forgive him. And I was able, I was able to let him know 
that he's safe and that uh, he's okay and that I love him. Mm-hmm. And if I didn't do that work, that that's the repair. I mean, I talk about this a lot, but where wherever there's rupture, there's an opportunity for repair, and it's in the repair that we heal. Yeah. And so if think about all the times that a queer person has maybe not revealed fully their truth mm-hmm. over time, that's like a thousand paper cuts. And mm. the thing of it is with paper cuts is you don't necessarily see them, but if you jumped in the ocean, you would feel it, you would feel it. Right. And so the repair is in the acknowledgement. Mm. Oh, Ooh, say that again. I feel like people need to write that down. <laughs> the, the repair is in the acknowledgement. Mm. And so if I can acknowledge that within myself, then I can acknowledge that I create a space for other gay men to step into and I acknowledge mm. them and I see them more fully. It, you know, and I think it's also important to, uh, to know too, Chris, that I think a lot of times when we go into this uh, work on ourselves, that we think that there's a finish line Right. When in fact that it, it's not like you, you continuously grow and change. And also that growth is not uh, a lateral thing. Like no. It's going to go up. It's going to go down. It's going to go sideways. And 100%. so I think it's, I think it's important to remember that even when we're dealing with this stuff that like you said, like you've been out for so many years and you still had that moment of, uh, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I'm not going to say yeah. it. Yeah, like, I mean, like you're a yoga teacher and I imagine maybe a lot of your listeners practice yoga. And I remember I did a 30-day yoga challenge during quarantine. And I thought that by day 20, I was going to (laughs) like so good at the routine that I was doing. Right. And I was like, why am I still struggling with this move after, you know? And I realized, like you just said, like, that's the, you know, growth isn't necessarily linear and, and it, some days are going to be, I'm going to be really great at my practice and other days I'm not going to be that great. And that doesn't mean that the previous 20 days didn't do anything for me. Mm -hmm. And so with, with this inner work, you know, I, I, I've said this since the very beginning, just because I wrote a book about raising LGBTQ allies that does not exempt me from doing the work in my own life. Well, and also you, this book is not your finished product. Like I guarantee you in five years, you're going to have to do a revised edition. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I mean, hopefully I, I do believe that the conversation is not just yeah. now. I think that that I've been so blessed. I feel truly with, with having, you know, done like written this book and kind of gone through this whole journey is that people have reached out to me. Like I had a father who a heterosexual man who has an adopted daughter and he reached out to me, his daughter's 13 years old. And he reached out to me and said that what he's learning about heteronormativity is actually helping him understand his daughter's experience of being adopted. Mm. Like he's, He's able to learn more because there's actually a thing you could Google it. It's called bionormativity. It's where uh-huh. we live in a culture that says that this is what a relationship should look like, you know, right. I'm and a dad. And if you don't have that, then you're not normal. And so he hit, hit learning about heteronormativity inspired him to learn more about bionormativity, which, oh, wow. which has helped him understand his daughter's experience. That, Oh, that must have made you, your heart swell. It did. <laughs> it goes back to messages from the playground. Yeah. You know, we all pick up messages about something about ourselves that says that I'm different. And that's, yeah. this, this is where the, the importance of language r- really comes into play is that I really emphasize the importance of language in talking about certain groups of people because children, going back to how intuitive they are, they pick up and that's the internalization that they'll experience. And so yeah. if we're constantly referring to a group of people as different mm. then as a young person, they're internalizing 
oh, like anyone that doesn't look like them or their household is, is different. different. Yeah. yeah. And so, Stephen, is that as an adult, like I understand that, you know, you get to a certain age and you don't want to be <laughs> you don't want to be like anyone else. Right. Exactly. I, but I'm speaking to one of the one of the biggest compliments that I've ever been paid about my about my book and about this topic is that they, the the person who said this said that I am centering children's experiences. And so hmm. that for me, I always think of a young child in the room who's listening. Yeah. Oh, that's because amazing. that young child exists in a literal sense and, and, and in <laughs> inner child sense. Yeah. All right. So Chris, I want to, uh, I want you to give a couple of tools to people, of course, aside from your book, which I'm going to plug again, but uh, what is there another, uh, anything else that you would uh, recommend another book or books that you would recommend to people who want to do this work on themselves? Um, yeah, I think that, I mean, gosh, I could just only speak from my own personal experience, but, um, the two books that really helped facilitate me and my journey were You Can Heal Your Life by Louise Hay. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, cause it's just so, it's, it is, it really is. It just so is life-changing because she writes about specifically, um, you know, the, for your listeners right now, they can even YouTube on YouTube. Mm. Yeah, there's a video of it's called Doors Opening, a positive approach to AIDS. And it's a documentary. It's about an hour long. And it's of Louise Hay's work in the 80s when uh -huh. the AIDS epidemic was was going on. And she worked very much. I mean, that was really kind of the start of her work was with with the population, the AIDS population. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that book. And then the second one is I'm sure you could probably guess what this one is, but uh, The Velvet Rage. I oh, think, yeah. Oh, my gosh. That ha that needs to be required reading. I think I think not only that, because I, 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 sh I mentioned that book because it's not only important for gay men, but it's it's important for families. I gave mm -hmm. that book my, and my mom read that book. And that, oh, really, wow. that really helped her understand the experience of having a son, like it helped her understand kind of our journey. Um, oh, wow. A little better. And, and I'll just, if I, if I could just wrap up with, this was one more like part that I read in, mm -hmm. in the I was doing that I want that I think will really nicely close this. Um, he says in the end, perhaps the most salient and affirming gift of being a queer identified person lies in the potential to experience psychological self-relatedness and self-fulfillment in a way that would be most useful at this moment in time. At this stage in my life as a gay Japanese Latino man, I have a deep interest in a continuing coming out inside, as posed by Walker, who is an author, describing gay desire as a personifying invitation by the psychological soul to a lifelong affair. So what that to me says, I loved what he said about coming out inside. It's a, oh. it's a continuing coming. Right. Out. Again, it's like growth. It, it never ends. <laughs> it, it just, and, and, and you shouldn't look at it as a way as that as a negative because. No, no, no. It's a beautiful. It, it's me, a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Coming out inside to me is unfolding. It's like a flower unfolding, not to be like, you know, poetic or whatever. But like I to me, what when I read that, I literally saw a flower like unfolding. Yeah. Being out inside is like a literally like an unfolding. It's a it's a, you know, of course, in miracles in my defenselessness, my safety lies. Mm. Yeah, that's to me what that says. I think that. Uh, oh, gosh, I mean, Chris, we could we could go on for out. And I've already made notes about two more topics you're going to come on and and talk about. Um, but uh, before I give one more plug to your book, I, I'm ending each uh, episode with the uh, Bernard Pivo questionnaire. Are you familiar? I'm not. So it's 10 questions. It was, made, it was made famous on the Actors Studio by uh, James Lipton. Oh. So are you game? I'm totally game. Okay. Uh, what is your favorite word? 
Oh, gosh. Um, consciousness. Oh, what is your least favorite word? Um, uh, I don't know. What's that was hard. That was hard for me too, by the way. <laughs> my least favorite word. Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Ugly. What'd you say? Ugly. Oh, that's yeah. What turns you on? What turns me on? Mm -hmm. A lot of things turn me on. Um, like, just give us one. Uh, so that could be. <laughs> it's however you want to interpret it, love. <laughs> what turns me on? Um, authenticity. Mm. Oh, I'm working on my reactions to people's answers. By the way, I need to like <laughs> stop doing that. Uh, what <laughs> what sound do you love? What sound? Oh gosh, children's laughter. What sound do you hate? Babies crying. What is your favorite curse word? F. You can say it. Okay, fuck. <laughs> what profession other than yours would you like to attempt? Sorry, what profession what? Other than yours would you like to attempt? Ooh. Um, gosh, I would love to be like a travel. Yes. Thing. <laughs> whether it's like a chef or I don't know, something where you go to different countries and like learn. Mm. What profession would you not like to participate in? Mm. Cleaning bathrooms. And last question, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Welcome home. Oh, that's so sweet. All right. Well, Chris, you know, I, I love and adore you. And again, Chris's book is called Raising LGBTQ Allies, A Parent's Guide to Changing the Messages from the Playground. Seriously, really an important book. And, I, book, and I'm so proud of you. I, I know when you started it and, um, and I've given many copies away and I've encouraged many people to buy it. Uh, thank you so much. I am grateful for you, Stephen. So thank you. And Again, congratulations on even having this podcast because I think that I'm, I mean, just more people hearing you and knowing you is, is a blessing. Oh, thank you. And uh, we will definitely be, well, we're going to be talking again very shortly in just a matter of minutes, but, but I would definitely love for you to come on again and, and uh, talk about a couple of other things. Oh my God. Anytime. Anytime. All right. Well, thank you again, Chris. All thank right, everyone. That is um, another episode. And I look forward to seeing you again. And so until then, be well. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at there once was a yogi. Also, I have a YouTube channel if you want to practice yoga or meditation with me also under there once was a yogi and be sure to follow and leave a review thanks <laughs>